Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today, we're going to talk about, um, first part of our show, we're going to talk about implicit bias. I think some of you have heard the term before. Um, so I am very fortunate to have an expert, uh, Tracy Pearson, who has done some research on it. So uh let me let me give you some background on her. Uh, Tracy Pearson is an expert in accountability, organizational culture, legal issues, investigations, and implicit bias. She holds two doctorates, a doctorate of education in organizational change and leadership, and a jurist doctorate. She's, she has been uh, featured in Forbes, Fast Company, the New York Post, Fox News, Fox News Business, The Wrap, and others. Uh, dealing with these issues. Uh, she also uh, is the executive producer of a show, Deep Dive with Dr. Tracy, and Deep Dive with Dr. Tracy, the podcast. And she's a regular on Court TV and WRHU 88.7 FM, which is a Metro New York station, radio station. She's appeared also on Bronx Net TV has been frequently invited to speak at events, most recently the Boston Congress of Public Health Debates. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to present to you Dr. Tracy Pearson. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have Dr. Tracy Pearson with us. How are you doing, Doc? I am doing well. How are you today? I'm doing good. Doing good. Uh, honored to have you on the show. But normally I kind of do this thing if I can find, if you've written a book or uh, you do a lot of public speaking, try to find a quote that you stated and kind of get into that a little bit. So the first quote, comes from an interview I think that you did and it says I can't think of a time where luck played a part in my achievements by luck I mean being in the right place the right time and efforts effortlessly landing where I needed to be in reflecting on my professional life it has felt like climbing mountain after mountain while I wish I was afforded a more effortless journey I am proud of what I have achieved because of how hard it was to achieve it. I'm, I've, I've always been the guy that believed in that thing. Luck is the intersection between opportunity and preparation. And Thomas Jefferson said something about he believed in luck and he said the harder he worked, the more he got it. Right. So you, you don't, you don't ascribe to that kind of philosophy. I, I see luck as, as being something that that is an effortless thing. It is it isn't something that requires preparation or or hard work. It just it is being in the right place at the right time and and you know not having to to exert as much effort as you would otherwise in order to achieve whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. And at my, in my experience, I, I can't think of a time where that's happened. It's always been a slog, um, you know, whether financially or, you know, professionally. Um, there's always been some sort of obstacle that I've been dealing with. Now, of course, that's said in, in a relative sense. There are people with far more obstacles. Uh, but there have been obstacles and challenges. And so I just, I feel like, like, you know, what I have accomplished, I've accomplished through through strategic um, uh, efforts, hard work, um, at times, you know, clawing my way through whatever it is that, that I was doing. So there's a method to my madness in asking the question. And this question is the follow up to that. Do you feel that African Americans climb mountain after mountain in our society? Oh, absolutely. They do. And they climb it while somebody's pushing on them from above to keep from getting up that mountain. Absolutely. Yeah. That is a daily experience. So with that, 
clarity, define implicit bias to the audience? Because my audience is primarily African-American, but you've heard that people hear the term, but a lot of people don't know exactly what that means. And since you've dedicated your life to, well, I won't say life, but you've dedicated a lot of your professional career in studying this, kind of define that for us. Sure. Um, There is a dictionary definition, and the the most common one is that it's the unconscious beliefs that guide your actions. However, my definition is just a tad bit different in that it's the unconscious beliefs that guide our actions, but that it it is a result of of two brain processes that are occurring simultaneously. Um, And and in such a way, uh, it's, it's pattern detection and probability determination. And they're happening at such a rate of speed um, that basically your brain is, is fritzing. It is, it is not, it's, you know, we've got the same model and the same software, you know, and there haven't been many upgrades since the time before tigers, you know, around tigers when we were being chased by tigers and we needed to, to keep ourselves safe from that. So, so it is a survival mechanism that is caused by the way your brain processes information. And my reasoning for why I, I rely on that is that I think too much emphasis is placed on, or, or it's, it's seized on, implicit bias is seized on as, as some, some sort of weapon that, 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 you know, that it's, it's a negative thing and it is a thing that, that those people who, who refute that they have it, everybody has it, um, but those people who deny that they have it Um, see that as a criticism. They say that, you know, I don't have bias. Um, And so one of the ways that I get around that is by explaining that, no, this is actually a scientific thing. It's a coping mechanism that you have. It's necessary for your existence. And and this is how it happens. So that you're familiar with B.F. Skinner, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when he talks about what is man, he talks about uh, prejudice uh, or uh, preference is something natural. Uh, I I I prefer an apple over an orange, right? But where his his struggle and where a lot of people struggle is is that when you create systems where I'm going to do everything for the apple and systematically outlaw the orange, that's when we get into a problem as society. So you do you ascribe to that or? Well, yes and 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 no. I mean, I you know, if we were to talk about it in in context, because I don't like talking about things in general terms. When we talk about in context, talk about policing. Okay. Policing in the United States was born out of out of racism. It was, uh, you know, we, we had the the slave codes, which were were for African Americans, and then we had pools, uh, you know, uh, standards on policing. And, and, you know, that was for, for the white people. And um, it, what, what was permitted in, in, that, that, in that interrelationship between those two things was that the, the police in, in this country um, and, and police that, I, you know, law enforcement, I respect law enforcement. I respect good law enforcement. Um, but, uh, you know, so I'm not anti-police per se. But I do think that there needs to be law and order, but not the way we're doing it now. Um, and I just want to be clear about that. But, uh, you know, that, that, that they dispute this and, and sort of hold up pools as being this great thing. And no, it wasn't. What pools did was it, it, it uh, at the same time was, were these slave codes. And what it did was they, it allowed uh, those slave codes to be enforced so that African Americans were property and they could be beaten and 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 every amount of violence in the world be used upon them in order to return them to their owners. And so when we look at, at policing in this country, yes, we had a system of laws that were created that favored one group over another and 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 it was because there were other laws that allowed that to happen. And so, um, and who wrote the laws, right? Who's sitting around the table and who's deciding these things is, is, a, is, a, is, is a major factor in how all of this comes about. So 
when you use the example, which I think is brilliant as far as talking about pool as opposed to the overseers, right, and the slave codes, is that more of an explicit bias rather than an implicit one? Um, you know, it depends on how you look at it. Um, at the time, um, it was it was a truth, right? So, so it was treated as a truth, not a bias. Um, you know, the our country was founded on this 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 idea that, that African American people were not people; um, they were property. Um, and then, you know, they, they didn't have rights and, and then, you know, the constitution kicks in and there's, there's, uh, amendments to that. And even still, um, that was something that was, um, rejected, um, that, that African-Americans had the rights that, that, that whites had, um, you know, we saw that in the South with voting, uh, particularly with voting. Um, and we still see it <laughs> with voting and with everything else, to be quite honest, um, so back then it was explicit, not a bias. It was a truth. And then over time, as the laws changed, it shifted into a bias. Some people have a direct one, right? Some people have an implicit one. It's not intended, but it is, it is a, a, a pro it, it comes about because of, of, of that brain process, their life experiences of putting things in buckets and, and the brain trying to figure out what to do with information at such a high speed. Do you feel that, or would you say that implicit bias is the most common microaggression African-Americans face in society? Um, I think that microaggressions come about because of implicit bias. Okay. Um, and is, is the way that I would, I would sort of lay that out. So, for example, um, I want to go to Kataji Brown-Jackson, now Associate Supreme Court Justice Kataji brown Jackson, who I, I, I was, my heart just filled with joy, um, absolute joy when, when she was confirmed. Um, it was a highlight of my day. Um, and uh, when um, Senator Kennedy, in his great big fake Southern accent, uh, decided to ask her, her questions and said that she was very articulate. Now, I can't figure out in my mind whether he was playing to his base and 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 using uh, that microaggression, or whether he really truly uh, was didn't understand that that was a microaggression that was fueled by implicit bias about you know the fact that a, a black woman who who had done everything that she had done had been in front of that committee many times, you know was was articulate, um, you know as opposed to what drooling, right um, and and and. and you know, when I explain to people, especially my, I, I usually refer to white people as light-skinned cousins, right? That um, when you tell somebody, I, I've had people number numerous times say, well, you're so well-spoken. And it just blows my mind. It is like, well, what did you, first of all, you hired me to speak, right? So obviously you knew I could say something or I was that something caught your attention. But to, to say, well, he, you know, you're so well-spoken in that. And people don't get that that's an insult to a lot of folks because most of us, you know, pride ourselves on being able to, especially if we're in, you know, me being in politics, we have to pride ourselves on being able to communicate our message. So when you, when I come before you and then you afterwards, you know, it's not like you say it out in the crowd, but you pull me aside, oh, you're so well-spoken and all that. And people don't get that that's an insult to a lot of a lot of black people. So I mean, yes. I, I get I get exactly what you're saying. Uh, you know, when when Kennedy, who I, I believe he went to Harvard Law School, did he not? Yeah, he used to be a Democrat and talked differently back then. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, okay. So <laughs> yeah, so you, but I the reason why I asked the question about the microaggression because that's another term that's thrown around a lot, um, and you hear that. Um, I, you know, I bring Ken Kendi, um, who wrote, you know, anti, you know, how to be an anti-racist. He, he had a profound impact on me, um, in, in understanding microaggressions. And I just interject this is that, um, he says we need to eliminate that word and stop using it because it was appropriated, um, to be used now across the board, uh, for implicit bias and not specifically towards, uh, towards black people. And 
and that um, and instead what we should use is the word abuse because that is in fact what it is. Um, and I quoted him in my dissertation about that. I felt like that, yeah, no, you're nailing it. That's exactly it. They are, folks are being abused when, when they say these things. And somebody would say, oh, that's not abuse. Saying you're well-spoken, that can't, you know, abuse is, is, has a different meaning or color to it. And, and it doesn't. For, for somebody to, to, to hear that, um, given history and context and, and, and you know, social climate, it is abusive to say that to someone, you know, it's insulting, it's abusive. Um, and, and at the same time, I can also say that folks who may say that may be caught up in a moment that they are, what they really want to say to you is that was a really great speech. But for some reason in their head, they've now converted it to you're so well-spoken. Right. And, and, and that's where that implicit bias comes into play. And, and I, you know, I don't think that most, most folks don't mean anything by it. It's not intended, but the impact on the listener is where it happens. So, and that was leading into another point where I was, another term that's used is imposter syndrome, right? That um, because of implicit bias or microaggressions, people uh, feel that they have to be something else. When I was when I was growing up, they would say, you know, if if one of us was real art, you know, uh, well versed, had a good vo vocabulary, or whatever, uh, or just the tone or inflection that we would use, they say, well, "Are you trying to sound white?" You know what I'm saying? Um, and you know that that was a term that we used on each other, right? And then um, what was the other thing I was going to say? But and then you you get into these scenarios. It was, history you hear about light-skinned blacks passing right to try to fit into society i was just reading in linkedin about a guy who uh instead of using his given name went through his initials and he ascended to be ceo of a company now that he's ceo and you know all this stuff now he's going back to his given name you know instead of jt i think it's javon somebody but he, he used jt as his initials anyway so now he's going by javon right because he's in a position and he feels as though that he shouldn't have to be ashamed of his heritage or all that but um you know i just would would imposter syndrome be considered like ptsd in response and since you put it in the context of abuse would you go that far and to say that us going through imposter syndrome would be a sign of uh, stress that that we're trying to overcome that bias? Um, well, I want to draw a distinction. I mean, I think the term imposter syndrome is used in a number of, of different contexts. Imposter syndrome is used with women uh, as sort of they feel like they are are um, they're they're that they're, they're somebody's going to figure out that they're a sham that that they don't belong. And so there's that version of it. And then there's what you're talking about. And, and so I think that, that, that this sort of um, disguising of, of, of um, you know, your, 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 your um, social identity, if you will. Um, you know, I mean, when you talk about people's identities, you have so many different facets to yourself. You have race, sex, class, you know, gender, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, your education, your, um, uh, you know, your sexual orientation. I mean, there's so many different things, right? So this is a multifaceted thing, a uh, prism, if you will. And, um, and so when, when you talk about uh, sort of changing your name to, to try to get through, uh, to make it through into sort of normative culture, um, I wouldn't, I don't think I would go as far as to say that it's sort of PTSD, but I think it is, is a, a, um, a strategy for coping with, with, um, with implicit bias and, and direct bias. Um, you know, it, it's, it is a, an attempt to try to, um, to fit into normative culture. I mean, what we see, here's a good, good sort of corollary to what I'm talking about. For example, um, not corollary, but when we see in organizations, right, we want diversity. 
come join our organization. We want to hire you. And then they hire you and then they expect you to shed everything about you that makes you unique and to join this group think. And if you don't think like us, if you don't act like us, if you don't take on the belief systems like we like we have, then you know, you're not a good fit. And so um, I think that that what we're talking about when when someone decides to to eliminate sort of that uniqueness about them, you know, their name, um, you know, et cetera, um, that what they are, maybe even the way they dress, um, that what their hair, um, you know, you know, eliminating the braids, cutting the hair or cutting the hair short or straightening the hair. I mean, you name you name it. Hair is a big issue. Um, but when they do that, then what they're trying to do is they're they're trying to themselves fit into that normative culture that that, you know, um, white heterosexual male, you, you know, middle aged sort of driven power driven culture that that then will allow them to achieve what they would like to achieve in the hopes that once they get there, then people will see them as legitimate. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And let me let me throw out some examples right real quick, because when we, we talk about having this embracing culture and we just had the Crown Act pass in, in the U.S. House, uh, and several states have done similar versions of it, which doesn't makes it illegal for you to discriminate against somebody or set policy dealing with their hair, how they wear it. But yet there's this baseball team in New York called the Yankees, right? That they wear those Navy pinstripes, the big NY on their jersey and all that. And you see guys that have beards and mullets and all that stuff. And the Yankees sign them. And every one of those guys, Josh Danielson is the latest guy. Josh Danielson had a mullet. I think when he played for Atlanta, he had a a full beard and a mustache. You don't recognize him with the Yankees because they have a code. You have to be clean shaven. Your hair has to be cut short. And we celebrate the Yankees. Most baseball fans, even if you don't like them playing against your home team, you respect the fact that they won 27 championships. So, do are we kind of in a do we have a double standard with that where it's like we don't necessarily want people telling us how to do this and other, but then we celebrate a successful group like the Yankees or IBM back in the day when they all wore the same color suits and all that, and we celebrate that as as a model of success. Yes, I think that that what we you know there's a there's a distinction between preference and bias right and and discrimination so preferences is i prefer one thing over the other um bias is i i i prefer one thing over another um and it is it is uh, it is malicious in 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 its general in how it's generated um i prefer one thing over another because of of beliefs that that are stereotypes Okay, that 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 I'm applying across the board, whether or not they apply to you, and then discrimination is the use of that bias in a in an adverse way to the individual that you're judging or interacting with, and so um, the Yankees have a preference for a particular look. Um, you know, back in the day, you know, the, you know, the, the eighties, I mean, the eighties are coming back. I mean, you know, I'm waiting for leg warmers and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm reliving my, my, my eighties years. I'm like, no, please don't bring this stuff back. Um, and you know, we got through it once. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that sort of, of, uh, you know, the suits and the whole thing and, and whatnot. Um, and, and you're right there, there is a celebration of that, but think about who's doing the celebrating and, 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 and what category of people are doing the celebrating. And even, even, you know, uh, black and brown folks were doing the celebrating because they wanted to be like those folks. Um, you know, they saw that as successful. And what that is, is, is the identity of what success looks like. Now, taking it back to the Supreme Court, we have a different picture of what success looks like when it comes to black women. Because now we know that that a black woman can be on the Supreme Court. 
um, just like, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, Sotomayor can be on the Supreme Court, just like, you know, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is this tiny, tiny little short Jewish American woman could be on the Supreme Court. A woman could actually be on the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, and so, you know, I'm waiting for nine. I, I, I tweeted the other day, I, I wonder if I'll see nine in my lifetime because nobody questions, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, nobody questions that there were nine men. Um, and so, um, you know, I do think that, that what it is, is it's, I don't know if it's necessarily a double standard as much as it is a, um, as it is, it is a, a symptomatic of, of a culture that, 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 that is embracing a normative viewpoint. And that viewpoint is, is, uh, and, and that's the controlling viewpoint. That's the viewpoint with all the power. So, you know, the, the guy who's wearing the suit and looks clean shaven or what have you, that's where power is located. And we all want to have some power, right? So we, we celebrate that. Um, if power looked differently than what that looked like, like, for example, the Supreme Court, now it looks a little bit different. That certainly is a lot of power right there. Um, and, and, you know, we would celebrate that. Um, and I think that, that, you know, there will always be a segment of society that will not celebrate that for whatever reason they have, whether it's because you are personally offended that the person from your state wasn't appointed, you know, like, like Lindsey Graham is, is walking around all hurt over, over his situation, as well as his, his racist tendencies. Um, I don't know why they keep reelecting him where he is, but that's another thing. Um, and then, and then there are people who are purely racist. Um, my problem with racism is that it's when we talk about racism and implicit bias and stuff, it is you know people say, well, it's racism. Okay, great. What are you gonna do about it? How you fix it? Tell me how you fix it. And 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 you know people get irritated with me. I get a little irritated with Joy Reid over this. She's like, because all white people are racist. No, we're not. But when we say that, we get attacked for that. And and so there's a there what what's being done to to black folks and large scale is being done to white people in those circumstances too. And how do you create an ally relationship? How do you create somebody, for example, like me? Okay, who has some relative power in certain circumstances, who has a, a, a pulpit from which to, to talk, um, when you're telling me that I'm racist. I'm not. Do I have implicit bias at times about a lot of things? Yes, and I'm aware of that. And I, I invite people to tell me when I am in, have implicit bias, when I'm not recognizing it, because that's the only way that you'll ever learn that you have it. So I, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot wrapped up in that, but yeah, you know, I just sort of want to get that out there. Well, that's good. Cause you've already kind of eliminated one question when we were talking about, <laughs> um, uh, you know, justice Jackson. Um, cause I, what I wanted to ask was, do you think that it was implicit or explicit bias, which what we saw before us? Um, uh, and I think it was a little bit of both. Um, so and a little and, bit of both, but mostly mostly explicit. I right. mean, it was it was it was it was. I I I'll be honest with you. I mean, I couldn't watch it straight through. And I'm you know I'm a I I'm on on Law and Crime um, Network and I'm on Court TV Network as as a legal analyst. And so I can sit for hours. I mean, I just sat for three hours watching um, live live coverage and and commenting on it. I couldn't sit through these these hearings at, in large segments because it was for me so triggering to watch them attack this woman, and and I'm a white woman. I couldn't watch it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was it was it was tremendously hurtful because I wanted her to say, "Hold up, you, okay? I appreciate have an opinion." However, I am still a federal judge. I was invited here and you're not going to speak to me in that way. Do you understand me? I so wanted her to do that. And yet I know that behind the scenes, the conversation was had where Joe Biden said, look, we just need you to get through this. This is going to be terrible. They're going to do terrible things to you. 
And part of the reason for why that needed to happen was to get the footage for the campaign commercials because right. she absolutely could not could not create a negative uh, um, picture that they could be seized upon. Right. So real quickly, we got about a minute. Can we fix this through public policy? Can we deal with implicit bias and, and all these other things through public policy? I think that we can try to teach um, students about implicit bias, although we'd be accused of critical race theory teaching. <laughs> um, um, we can teach it as part of critical, critical thinking. We can teach it about uh, as part of media literacy. We can sneak it into those places. Um, hopefully nobody's listening that might figure that out. Um, and they'll rule all that stuff, right? Um, that's a place that we can do it. Um, you, you're never going to legislate um, racism to go away or implicit bias to go away. You're never going to do that. Um, but, but what you can do is you can, you can legislate and, uh, training and education and, um, you know, and, and it's really the grassroots folks that are going to make a difference in society when it comes to this stuff. Um, it's, it's having these conversations. It is engaging in, in sort of campaigns on these issues. It is, it is, you know, holding seminars and things like that. It is not something that you can ever create a law about, I don't think. All right. Well, that's going to have to be the last word, Dr. Pearson. Deep Dive with Dr. Tracy. Make sure you check out that podcast. And again, it's been an honor and a privilege to, to have this conversation with you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll catch y'all on the other side. And so we are back. Um, Wow. Uh, So I hope that you get a chance to listen to her podcast uh, uh, when you can, the deep dive with Dr. Tracy. Um, So you can hear more of what you heard those last 30 minutes. Um, As you can see, very thoughtful, very opinionated, which is awesome. Um, and uh, I hope some of y'all picked up on some concerns that she had too. But that was an awesome interview. And hopefully, again, like you said, we're going to try to continue to get great guests on uh, on the show. Um, also too, um, as, as I stated before, a lot of times the conversation off air is awesome. And we may be putting together a special show about a special topic (laughs) that's been on everybody's mind. Uh, So either on her show or, 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 or mine either way, but we're we're probably going to put something together um, to talk about, you know, something that everybody saw and everybody's got an opinion on. And uh, so just be looking out for that in the future. Um, I wanted to talk, there's been a lot of things going on, but I wanted to kind of talk about the confirmation. Um, 53 senators voted to confirm Katanji Brown-Jackson as the 116th Associate Justice for the United States Supreme Court uh, with the first African-American vice president who also happens to be an African-American woman who also happens to be of Asian descent presiding over the vote. Um, And to see that happen uh, is a, is an awesome thing. And, And to be honest, despite the fact, and I was a younger guy then, I guess 20 years younger. Um, or, or, or even more, to see Clarence Thomas get in. I mean, from the 
politics standpoint, people were not really happy, but at least President H.W. Bush was conscious enough to replace the first black justice with another black justice. So those of us who lived through that and really couldn't celebrate for all the dynamics that had happened, this was a moment for us uh, to, to have that. And whether that's fair to Clarence Thomas or not, it is what it is, um, you know. But I, I do think that those of us who are of that of this generation really embrace this nomination more so than the Thomas nomination, and the fact that we were like toddlers when the first black was uh, Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme Court. This this was our moment, right? as well as younger people. And again, it, it's just, it's all part of that imagery, right? We, we talked about biases and all that kind of stuff. <sighs> to see a black person, especially a black female in the position of power with, with her name, not Sue or Becky or whatever, but Katanji, right? You know? It may seem simplistic to a lot of folks, but it means something. Uh, when you can be your authentic self uh, and and still attain positions of power and still attain uh, respect for being the best or being considered one of the best at your profession doesn't matter if it's a legal profession, medical profession, uh, sports. doesn't matter what it is. To be recognized as one of the best to for a young black child to see a older black person recognized for their talent and given an opportunity to ascend to one of the highest positions in American government is it can't do anything but improve the mindset of our children and to really improve the mindset of the community as a whole to accept things. And I and I know I've told this story on the podcast, but it's relevant because it comes back to trust when you see people in positions and they do them well, then you develop a trust factor so that when somebody else that looks like that same person or of the same race or ethnicity or whatever ascends to that position, you have a trust that that person will continue that competency, that that person will continue that legacy uh, that will continue to build on that trust that you have confidence that they can do the job, right? I mean, that is that is the importance of putting people in position so people can see that it doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter how you identify yourself, that if you are competent, right? If you are the best at what you do and you're recognized for it, then that builds a trust in the community that the next time I see somebody that looks like her or look like him in that position, I won't have any questions. It'll be okay. And then generations of children that look like these people will have the confidence to understand that I can do that. Um, I was reading a bio about a particular actress and before she made her commitment to getting the acting, she wanted to be an astronaut because she saw Mae Jemison, right? My role model was Neil Armstrong and, and 
Buzz Aldrin and, and Michael Collins, right? Those were the guys that walked on the moon. They didn't look like me. You know, every president of the United States that was in the encyclopedia did not look like me. But now there are children that can say astronauts look like them. A president looks like them. A vice president looks like them. The Supreme Court justice looks like them, right? That's why it's important. And for those people who, I mean, even Roy Blunt said it. He basically told the world, I can't vote for her because my politics will not allow me to be a free man to vote for her. But I do understand the significance of her being in that spot. He said that. He didn't say exactly what I said, but he said it. You can go back and look at the tape. It was the ABC this week, George Stephanopoulos, and, and Stephanopoulos's look when Blunt said that was priceless. <laughs> it was priceless. Because it was how 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 bad is it? Where you you acknowledge the significance of this woman being appointed to the Supreme Court, and you have to be you've you've you are constricted to be on the wrong side of history. You're compelled to be on the wrong side. It's one thing if you down the road when you look at stuff 2020 in hindsight that you ended up on the wrong side of history, but to know. And there's nothing you can do about it. You feel that you you have to be on the wrong side of history. That's a terrible feeling. I would never, ever want to be in politics or want to be in politics that, that bad that I am just totally constricted like that. The worst vote I ever took was to, and you've heard me tell this story, uh, to, to bring a vote on changing the state flag in Mississippi in 2001. That was the worst vote I ever took because I, you know, I knew that it was going, it was not going to win. There was a hope once you got it on there, but just the way it all unfolded and even unfolded worse than I thought it was going to be. Um, you know, it was just, I, I, I wish if there was one vote I could take back, I wish I could take that back and vote against it just on principle because I knew it wasn't going to work. But I didn't feel like I was restricted, right? I made a judgment call. And then I did my best to campaign for the new flag once we made that commitment, you know? That's totally different than knowing that there's going to be a major impact if this woman is selected to be a Supreme Court justice and you can't vote for her. Your politics will not allow you to vote for her. You understand how significant this is, how important this is, not just for that individual or the president that you don't like, but for the nation to see it happen. And you can't, you can't do anything about it. How bad is that, right? Even slaves had the will to be free. Even though the system was set up where they weren't, even if they got away, the system was set up where they could be caught and sent back. They still wanted to be free. And here is a man who is a member of the United States Senate one of the hundred most powerful people in the country. And he's not free to vote his conscience. 
that that sounds like retirement talk at that point. It sounds like, yeah, I'm not running for re-election because I can't keep, how can I serve the people if I can't be free to do the right thing? Right? And then you see all these guys and a few ladies walk out of the chamber because a Supreme Court nominee was confirmed. Now, if it really bothered you that bad, you know, and you're trying to send a message, okay. But don't say that you understand the significance of why this position was important and then act like it's the worst thing that ever happened. You storm out of, out of the Senate chamber. I don't get it. Um, nonetheless, I think that I had asked my guest, Dr. Pearson, do you think public policy can change that? And and Martin Luther King had said that you can't legislate morality. And I've always ascribed to that. I always believe that our guidance for legislation comes from preamble of the constitution, that we have to secure individual liberty, but promote the general welfare. We have that dual obligation. And sometimes the scale will tip more one to the other, but that's the precept. But never is it in there about morality. Morality is something that you have to attain, whether through your own spiritual guidance at home or at your place of worship or however you attain it. Your your moral compass can't be legislated. And we can do some things to make it harder for you to discriminate against people. We make it harder for you to try to stop people from voting. We can try to make it hard for you to indiscriminately kill people and call it justice. But we can't legislate morality, right? And I think that's the universal understanding, or it should be. So I don't know how long it will take for us to get to a point where there's not 47 people in the chamber of the United States Senate that think the way that Roy Blunt or Lindsey Graham or Ted Cruz or Josh Hanley or whatever, Howley, however however you pronounce his name, how you... um, or Tom Cotton. I just always think that a white person named Cotton should be very, very cognizant about being a racist, especially in the South. That's just me. Now, there's probably a whole bunch of good white people named Cotton, very progressive mindset and all that. But to me, a white guy named Cotton espousing racist views, it's probably not a good look in the South to me. Now he gets elected in Arkansas, but I'd be conscious of it. I wouldn't let my politics dictate my morality. Or I I wouldn't let my politics be my morality. How about that? Because I, I used to have people come to me. I literally had one guy come. And basically, he told me he was supporting this guy. Because he was God's man. Right? And that the other guy was not. And of course, I'm like, in my mind, like, first of all, it's crazy, right? Because if you really knew this dude that you're saying is God's man, you 
probably wouldn't say that out loud. And then two, not to say that he was an evil dude, but he wasn't saintly by any stretch of imagination. And 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 second of all, it's like God created all of us. So what church do you go to where you think God says these human beings are okay and the rest of them suck? Right? And I think if we all approach the, that everybody is God's creation, that we would try to be better at respecting each other and liking each other and, and uh, being mindful of each other's feelings. It's hard, but if we have a, a moral compass, we can we can figure it out. Nonetheless, our politics should not be our morality. Our politics is what it is. It is our mechanism to choose leaders to help our society be stable. And then we have a stable society to work with, that framework to work under, then we as individuals have the freedom to be better individuals through education, through spiritual training, through just having life experience. Doesn't matter if you practice hitting 100 golf shots a day or you know, you go to the law library every day to study. We have the freedom to do that. We're supposed to have the freedom to do that because the politics we chose to have is supposed to give us that network, that framework, that stability so that we don't have to worry about the day-to-day decisions about budgets and taxes and implementing laws and and fixing potholes. We select people to do that. We elect people to do that so that we can carry on our day-to-day lives and make sure that we make sure the dog gets out at a certain time or that we pick up our kids at the right time at daycare or, you know, we show up to work on time, right? We've got time to do our daily stuff because we're supposed to have a politics structure that supports us. But never is our politics supposed to be our morality. Never. If I know that voting for somebody is the right thing to do to be a Supreme Court justice, if I know the magnitude of that moment no political party, no constituent base would stop me from doing that. If I know it's the right thing to do, my job as an elected leader is to explain to the masses why I took that vote, why it was important for that vote to happen. Whatever misconceptions you may have had, let me address those so you understand why I did what I did. And from my experience, that works because all people want to know is that the person that they elected is taking care of their business so that they can go about theirs. Now, your religious beliefs affect certain decisions that you make politically. That's fine. Sometimes they're going to conflict with the Constitution. Sometimes they're going to fall in line with the Constitution. It is what it is. But your morality should never be dictated by your politics. If it was the right thing to vote for Katanji Brown Jackson to be the associate justice on the Supreme Court, then you should have voted that way. And you shouldn't have been making up all this stuff. Oh, by the way, 
So let me tell you, before I run out of time, let me tell you the real reason why they didn't vote for her. It didn't have anything to do with sentencing pedophiles. Didn't have anything to do with defending terrorists. It had something to do with Donald Trump. So you remember there was this attorney, um, started with a G, I can't think of the guy's name now, now that I'm talking about it. But he was the attorney for the White House. And the impeachment committee, uh, you know, wanted him to testify. The Judiciary Committee in the House wanted him to testify. He claimed that he had some kind of executive privilege from testimony because he was White House counsel. Or he was one of Trump's attorneys, whether he's White House counsel or one of them. I think it was he was White House counsel at the time. And there was a judge that said, no, you can't do that. And and that judge was citing situation with the Watergate case and all that. It was a pretty long opinion. And the DC court initially, the appeals, appellate court initially said, yeah, no, we, we don't agree with that ruling judge, but here's what we'll do. Let's, let's examine it. And, uh, and even maybe have a retrial. I think, I think that's kind of how it was going. They basically didn't, they didn't just summarily dismiss her ruling, but they kind of offered like, a way out where it could be brought before the appellate court and they could decide really on the merits what was happening. And by the time they finally figured all that out and what they were trying to do, the attorney went ahead and testified. Um, because the appellate court, like I said, didn't totally throw out her ruling. There were some points of merit that this judge had. So the, the judge that made that decision was Katanji Brown Jackson before she was put on the very appellate court that was dealing with that decision. That's why they were against her because she was one of those judges, whether they were Trump appointed or Obama appointed, she was one of those federal judges that basically gave Donald Trump a loss in court. She had the audacity to rule against Donald Trump in a legal case, as many judges have <laughs> over the last two or three years, right? But she was one of them. And so she was the only one of those folks who was up for the Supreme Court. And so this is their time to show out. But here's the trick. Lindsey Graham, who all of a sudden is just totally disgusted with her, voted for her to be a member of the D.C. Court of Appeals and right after she made that decision. She got appointed and, and she got confirmed and Lindsey Graham voted for her. But now all of a sudden, He's got a problem with her. And her problem dates back to the time before she was even on the federal bench and when she was first on the federal bench as a district judge. None of the appellate stuff was an issue. So basically... The call went out and said, hey, you know, this woman ain't our friend. I don't know why any of y'all supported her the first time, but I can't have y'all support her. Again, and basically the only senators that voted with her were the senators that basically either wanted Trump impeached and voted that way or 
We're not running for election. They don't really care. Right? Although there was one senator that voted to impeach Trump that did not vote to confirm him. But, yeah. This was just basically loyalty to Donald. And if your morality is, and your politics, is centered around that guy, you've got some serious issues to deal with. Serious conscience issues to deal with. That goes beyond race, that goes beyond gender and all that. It 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 questions whether you're even worthy to be called an American. And I know that's a harsh statement. But this is the guy that wanted to overthrow the United States government so he could stay president. And you still want to line up with him. You still want to do political favors for him. Even at the expense of being on the wrong side of history on one of the most historic votes you could have ever taken. The softest pillow any man could sleep on is a clear conscience. But every day, I see a number of people in Washington that challenge that theory. Until next time.